Well, as Libby mentioned, in this uh, sermon series, we're going through what it means to be a healthy person, what it means to be a healthy Christian. We're looking at a life worth living, the life that God intended us to live as individual people. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to be healthy in all the different aspects of our lives? And this morning, we're looking in particular at healthy relationships, healthy relationships. It was, I think, seven years ago now, and I heard a talk at a conference I was at uh, by uh, a guy called Dr. Henry Cloud. Now, Henry Cloud is uh, a psychologist, and he's also a leadership consultant. He talks to lots of CEOs in business, as well as church leaders. He had his own uh, practice. He, he lives in the west coast of America, uh, so therefore he is uh, a psychologist. And um, he has, is really incisive in the way that he observes how people interact with each other. And on this particular occasion, he was talking to about 8,000 of us who were in the room and X number of thousand who were watching uh, live on the internet. And he spoke about relationships and the way in which the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament puts people into one of three categories. And according to the book of Proverbs, people, us, fall into three categories. We are either wise, foolish, or evil. Wise, foolish, or evil. Now, those are three quite stark categories. Because we're British, because we live in Edinburgh, because we're nice, we don't like to think of people as evil. But Henry Cloud said, if you look at the book of Proverbs, there are these three categories that people fall into in their relationships. Foolish, wise, and evil. Now, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Well, in order to illustrate it, Henry Cloud spoke about how each of these different groups of people respond to when they're confronted with something. So it might be a boss at work. It might be somebody in your connect group. It might be somebody in your family. See how they respond when you raise something with them. Cloud said a wise person will welcome that confrontation. A wise person will welcome your input into their life, a bit like mentoring. Wise people have mentors, and wise people are mentors. These are the sort of people who, when presented with the truth, listen, want to learn from it, and then are willing to adjust and change themselves in order to respond to the truth or the element of truth, or the aspect of truth that has been presented to them. So someone comes alongside you and said, Dave, your sermon really wasn't great. So my response as a wise person, apart from being disbelieving, would, would be to say, thanks, how, how could I do it better? How could I learn better? How could I preach better? We do that on a, on a Monday morning. We, uh, Libby and I, uh, together with Mark and, and, and Rachel, will critique the talks and we give each other uh, fairly straight and honest feedback. That bit was good, Dave. Again, your talk was 
too long. Um, whatever it might be, Libby, your slides were great. Dave, your jokes were horrendous. We want to learn from it. We want to learn, want to hear how we can become better preachers and communicators. And a wise person will listen, learn, and then adjust. They will take responsibility for their own mistakes, for their own performance, for their own problems and their own issues. A wise person is very willing to show remorse and not to allow problems to then turn into patterns of repeating behavior. That's a wise person. What does a foolish person look like? Well, a foolish person will respond quite differently. A foolish person will try and change or reframe the truth, fake news, so they don't have to change. They will retell the narrative in a way that they want it to be told. They will have little to do. They will perhaps not even countenance what you're saying to them, and they will be defensive. They will externalize mistakes. They will blame other people. Well, it wasn't my fault the talk was so long. Libby, your notices were so long. That's why my talk was so long. Or this subject was so big, I had to preach for 45 minutes. And people were still with me, so I could keep on going. That's just a warning ahead of the, the time. Um, but that's what a foolish person will do. They become defensive. They externalize They'll blame other people. They won't take responsibility for what they have done, for what they have said. And conversations with these types of people often feel ones of conflict and alienation. And a foolish person will externalize, they will rationalize, they will minimize, and they will make excuses. Now already, as I've gone through the wise and the foolish, each of you are thinking of people who fall into those two categories. So it might be at work, it might be in your family, it might be in the church, it might be in your connect group, it might be in the clergy, one is wise, one is foolish. I'm not saying which is which. Neither of us are evil. But you can very easily put people into those categories. Now, the reality is that different people and different ones of us will be wise and foolish to different people at different times and in different contexts and in different situations. So different people will perceive you as wise while other people will perceive you as foolish. What about evil people? Well, because he's American, because he lives on the West Coast, Henry Cloud gives this strong and stark description. He advises only one response, protection mode. He calls it three things are required when dealing with an evil person, lawyers, guns, and money. As I say, he lives on the West Coast of America, lawyers, guns, and money. But he made this startling observation. We each need to get to the point of realizing that there are people in the world who will and want to hurt us intentionally and deliberately. There are people in the world who will and want to hurt us deliberately and intentionally. 
And Cloud makes great play of the fact that our relationships are what we allow them to be. We tolerate, we put up with what we put up with and tolerate. And actually changing our relationships, the main person who owns and has the responsibility for changing the relationships around us if we don't like them, the main person for changing them is actually us. It's not the other person. It's not the other people. It's not them. It's us. It's me. Now, we don't like to think of people in these terms, wise, foolish, or evil. But I think Cloud is right. And it's striking again and again that when the Apostle Paul begins to describe the effects of Christianity in the early church, one of the things that he addresses again and again and again in his letters to the churches around the Roman Empire is that area of relationships. It's the one feature that enables the early church to be distinctive. What enabled the early church to grow wasn't primarily their prayer life, important though that was. It wasn't primarily their worship life, the songs that they sang, the psalms that they sung, important though that was. It wasn't primarily even their evangelism, important though that was. What struck people in the ancient world about the early church, these early Christian communities, was one thing. It was the quality of their relationships. So by the third or fourth century, you have one of the early church fathers, one of the early church bishops, a guy called Tertullian, repeating what people in the Roman Empire were saying about the church. See how these Christians love one another. See how these Christians love one another. And they didn't just love one another. It wasn't just an internal thing. It was an external thing as well. When disease or sickness or plague hit a city, it was the Christians who either stayed in the city when everybody else was leaving, or in some cases actually went back into the city to care for people who were affected by leprosy or another sickness or disease that had hit that particular community. And it was the quality of the relationship and the quality of the care and the quality of the love that made these early Christian communities distinctive from the culture and society in which they live. Years later, it would lead to the founding of places where people who were sick would be looked after. Hospitals. They didn't exist before the church invented hospitals. It would lead to the existence of places where children whose parents had died would be looked after, orphanages. They didn't exist before the church brought them into being. It would lead to the existence of places where people would be cared for as they died, hospices, which did not exist before the church created them. These things did not exist in Roman, Jewish, Greek society. Hospitals, orphanages, and hospices, they did not exist. They had never existed before the church of Jesus Christ brought them into being, motivated by the love and the compassion that they had for people around them. 
And this focus on relationships occurs again and again in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in here, in Colossae, in that passage uh, that Di read for us a few moments ago. Right relationships are part of what it means to be a Christian. It's not just about our relationship with God. It has consequences for the way in which we think and the way in which we act to the people around us. That's the way our faith is played out in the way that we relate to the human beings around us. Jesus made it the main thrust of his final talk to the disciples. John chapter 15 and verse 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. This is my command. Love each other. And that was just a few hours before he himself was taken, arrested and put to death. He's addressing that commandment to a small group, mainly made up of men, who in the previous three years had jostled for status and position. They'd fallen out over strategy and timings. In a few hours, one of them would deny Jesus three times. In a few hours, one of them would betray Jesus. And it's to that group of men, mainly there were some women in the upper room as well, but it's to that group of disciples that Jesus says, a new command I give to you, love one another, even as I have loved you. By this will people know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. The distinctive characteristic of the church is that we are called to be people of love. Within a few hours, this small group of men and women would be called to take on the world's most powerful military and economic empire that the world had ever seen. Rome. They would have to sustain opposition from the world's most thought-through and sustainable religious community, the Jewish community. And all they went with was love one another, even as I have loved you. Now in Colossians chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, turn to it or get it back up on your phone or your iPad or your tablet or whatever you're using to read the Bible, Paul is utterly realistic and utterly practical. He pleads with the Christians in Colossae to remember who they are. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And in essence, what Paul is saying is, remember who you are. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember how much you are loved. Remember how much you are forgiven. Remember how much you are accepted. Because if you know how much you're loved, if you know how much you're accepted, if you know how much you are forgiven unconditionally, then hopefully that sets you free to love and forgive the people around you. So some of us this morning simply need to hear this sentence, God loves you. That's all you need to hear this morning. God loves you. God accepts you. God forgives you unconditionally. And God likes you. He doesn't just love you because he's God and that's what God does. He likes you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. There's a verse in the Old Testament in Zephaniah that speaks about God rejoicing over you with singing. It's a picture of God, as it were, going through eternity, looking at each of us and singing a song about us. When was the last time that someone sang a song about you? 
Never mind to you or at you, that's a whole different thing. But over you, just rejoicing in who you are. That's the picture in Colossians chapter 3. Remember who you are. Remember how much you're loved. Remember how much you're forgiven. Remember how much you're accepted. Remember what God has done for you in Christ. And knowing that, love other people. Forgive them, accept them. Live lives of qualitative difference. A paraphrase of verse 2 is this, allow your vision of life, your worldview, your most basic life orientation to be directed by Christ's heavenly rule at the right hand of God. Now, as I say, Paul is not naive. He's utterly realistic, and he gives them in verses 5 to 10 some stuff to get rid of, and it is quite a list, Colossians 3 verses 5 to 10. He says, get rid of these things, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. This is the church he's writing to. And he's saying, brothers and sisters, get rid of these things. Get rid of these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. Selfish, greedy using of people and things, talking down about people, spreading rumors and lies about and swearing and blaspheming. That is who you were, he says, before you became Christ followers. And now you know how much you're forgiven. Now you know how much you're loved. Now you need to put those things off and you need to get rid of them and you need to stop doing them. He says, verse 5, what one person refers to as industrial sexuality. That's what it's implied in sexual immorality. He's saying, stop using people for outcomes rather than commitment and mutual love. Remember what we looked at a couple of weeks ago? In the ancient world, relationships were all about economic practicalities. Relationships between parents and children were all about survival. The more children you had, that meant that you were more blessed because it meant that you would be more prosperous because it meant that your children would look after you when you got old. Yes, I know that ship has sailed. I know we do not live in first century Palestine or Greece or Rome. I know that now, with three kids, we're going to be lucky if one of them looks after us in our old age. But the idea, and lots of people go, yeah, me too, yeah, you should hear about my kids. That was the idea. The more children you had, the more workers you had to put in the field, because that's where you sent your kids, and then they looked after you in your old age. Relationships, parents and children, masters, slaves, husbands and wives, it was all economic because it was all about survival. It was all transactional. It was all about having enough people in your family so that you could stay alive. That's why it makes it striking again and again that Paul, when he speaks about relationships, speaks in terms of responsibilities rather than rights between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between masters and slaves. And he talks about relationships in a whole different way. He does it towards the end of Colossians chapter 3, which is his version of Ephesians chapter 5. He reminds them in Colossians chapter 3 of the image of God in the Creator that is then found in every single human being. He says, remember who people are, that God made them, 
and that there is a family likeness. And if we claim to be the family of Christ, then there should be a family likeness. See, if we claim to be sons and daughters of the Father, if we claim to be brothers and sisters with Jesus, then people should see a family likeness. Next uh, Saturday, our eldest, Josh, is, is getting married. I don't know how that happened, uh, that he's old enough to do that, but he's getting married. Next Saturday afternoon, uh, Josh will be the groom, Nathan's leading the worship, and Iona's a bridesmaid. Looking towards the front, there will be no doubt that those three people up there are my children. The eyebrows will give it away. <laughs> Iona yesterday looked at me and said, Dad, I think my eyebrows are getting darker. And there was a look of panic in her eyes. Were such a thing possible? There should be a family resemblance in those of us who claim to be sons and daughters of the Father. Paul says, remember who you are. Because if you remember who you are, then that breaks down all the divisions in our society. If you remember that in the church, we're called to be a sign of, of the new creation, the new community, then we should be different in the way that we relate to each other. About 10 days ago, Mark Green from uh, the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity was here in church talking to about 60 church leaders uh, from across Edinburgh. And at one stage, he, he led us through an exercise to analyze and exegete the culture of our city. He said, if you're going to be preachers and preach into Edinburgh, you need to understand the culture in which you live and in which everybody that you're preaching to normally lives. So he, he asked us some questions. It's a fascinating exercise, analyzing the culture of Edinburgh. These are some of the questions that he asked. What are the dominant values in Edinburgh? What are the priorities? What are the structures? What are the stories that are told about Edinburgh? Who are the heroes of our city? To whom are the statues erected in Edinburgh? And we spent about 20, 25 minutes just thinking through the city, going round the city in our minds, thinking about the statues, thinking about what's presented about Edinburgh. For example, when you arrive at Edinburgh Airport, there are enormous pictures, a bit like this one, of these stunning panoramic views of the city or, or the new town, enormous squares, obviously taken about five o'clock in the morning on the one day that the sun shines and, uh, and there's no one around at all. And there are, these are huge, huge photographs of Edinburgh. It looks absolutely stunning. You only see them when you're arriving. You don't see them as you leave because they don't want you to leave, but they look stunning. And then also there are verses from um, uh, poets and, and, and writers from across Edinburgh's history. So there are quotes from people like Alexander McCall Smith, Edinburgh, a city of shifting light, of changing skies, of sudden vistas. Edinburgh, a city so beautiful that it breaks the heart again and again. Other airports do not have pictures like this. When you arrive at Heathrow, there aren't pictures of London saying, you're in London. Presumably because Heathrow knows it's not in London, but that's a whole different thing. But if you go to different airports around the world, I was struggling to think of another city that presents itself in the way that Edinburgh does. What's going on there? We thought what it might mean 
to think about our city in a different way. And we realize that our city is often characterized by division. North side versus south side, Hibs versus Hearts, state school versus private school, Scots against English, incomers against locals, Old Town versus New Town. And we imagine the power of what it would be for Colossians 3 verse 11 or Galatians 5 28 to be rewritten and paraphrased and put up on a notice board outside a church like P's and G's with these words. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, Scot or English, circumcised or uncircumcised, state school or private school, barbarian, Scythian, hearts fan, hibs fan, slave or free, old town, new town, male or female, young or old, Letha or New Haven, a Stockbridge or Morningside, the Grange or Granton, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Wouldn't that be an amazingly powerful message to say to the city, that we live in. The divisions that are out there, and if we're honest, the divisions that are sometimes in here and in here, actually don't count for anything in here. Because we're a new community, all one in Christ Jesus. And then finally, Paul says, put on new clothes. Verses 12 to 14. In preparation for a wedding, I can tell you there has been much searching for special clothes. Here Paul speaks about the need for new clothes as a Christian community. He says, verse 12 to 14, put on, dress yourselves, drape yourselves, adorn yourselves. That's the sense of verse 12. With what? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, love. And over all these virtues put on love. It's a sort of an alternate list of the fruit of the Spirit that normally we find in Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And the question for you and for me this morning is this. When you look at that list, kindness, humility, gentleness, compassion, patience, forgiveness, love, do they describe your relationships? Do they describe my relationships. If you were to ask the friends that you have, if you were to ask the people in your work who work with you, who work above you, who work for you, or who work alongside you, would the words that they would use to describe the relationships that you have with them, would they come from that list? Compassion. Are we able to fit participate and feel the suffering of another person kindness do we have power over someone perhaps at work or in the family but refrain from using it humility do we take the lower part thinking how we can serve rather as our culture and our society insists upon that we insist on our rights gentleness are we reliable Many years ago now, an old friend, Nigel Pollock, wrote a book on relationships, and he said that if you look at friendships, this are five or six things that are required for a healthy friendship. Mutual commitment, sacrificial love, openness, honesty, service, and interdependence. That's a biblical view of friendship, not marriage, although hopefully marriage involves friendship as well. That's a whole different ballgame. But when you look at that list again, if you think about your friendships, mutual commitment, sacrificial love, openness, honesty, service, and interdependence, 
Do they characterize your relationships and mine, our friendships? And maybe if you go back to that very stark categorization that Henry Cloud made, wise, foolish, and evil. Where are the relationships where people might perceive us as wise? Where are the relationships where, if we're honest, somebody on the other side of us might well perceive us as foolish? And where are the people around us who do deliberately and intentionally wish us harm? And can we give ourselves permission perhaps to end those relationships or at least protect ourselves if those relationships have to be ongoing? Remember who you are, Paul says. Remember how much you've been forgiven. Remember how much you've been loved. Remember how much you're accepted. And in light of that, lead lives that are qualitatively different because you have been forgiven, because you're loved, then love and forgive other people in such a way that the world takes notice. Libby.